The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning, whether you're here in, here in person or watching us online. I'm so glad that you're here, as Joe, Joe said earlier. Um, if we haven't met, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here, and I love, I love the beginning of any series that we do, um, because we get to do things um, a little bit different when it comes um, to creativity. I, I know someone who's in our community that's an artist, and I reached out to him. Um, actually, we reached out to him back in December and asked him uh, to, to do a bumper for us. Um, so that's someone who does not go to our church that, that drew that out. Um, and it took him about uh, 45 days to do that. Um, like, we might look at that and think, oh, like, how hard could that be? Um, well, it's hard. Um, as he walked me through his process, and we were just really excited to be able to do that, um, and we're hoping that he's going to do things with us um, going forward as well. So we are starting this today, we're starting off the series on the Gospel of Mark. And why are we talking about Mark? Uh, one of the things that I have wanted to do uh, for, for several years was begin the Gospel of Mark right after Christmas. Um, there are 16 chapters and take 16 weeks to go from Christmas, um, which obviously tells the, birth, tells the story of the birth of Jesus, and ends with the crucifixion and resurrection on Easter Sunday. So this has kind of been a, a dream of mine, a dream series of mine to be able to do this. Um, it also forces us to, to ask some questions about the identity of Jesus. As maybe you have grown up in the church, I grew up in the church, and as people who grow up in the church, sometimes it can be really easy for us to get really comfortable with Jesus. Um, we can read the text and we don't have to think too much about what's going on because we've kind of heard it all before. And this familiarity uh, can, be a little, can be a little dangerous for us because we might miss out on who Jesus is and what he's really trying to accomplish. So this gospel, because it's the shortest gospel, and it's really the fastest gospel, it forces us to deal with the things of Jesus in ways maybe that we haven't thought of um, before. Um, it's the good news. It's the good news. It's the reason that we gather together, and it forces us to respond. See, when we read the Bible together as Christians, whether we do it in a room like this or in a small group or I'm reading the Bible in my house, we are forced to respond. We are forced to react to what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is doing, to what the Bible is telling us. And as we're going to see throughout this gospel, the gospel of Mark over the next few months, there are really three different kinds of responses. There are people who follow Jesus. We're going to see a lot of that in Mark chapter 1 today. We see people who are going to follow Jesus. We're going to see people who are going to ask, who is Jesus? Like he's going to do these things. He's going to say these things. He's going to heal people. He's going to cause all sorts of problems for the religious leaders of the day. And they're going to ask questions like, who is Jesus? And then there are going to be people who reject Jesus. And as we think about our own responses and the responses of our own culture to Jesus, we see those three, same three things today. There are people who follow Jesus. There are people who, who ask, who is he? And there are people who reject him. So as Joe said, um, we, we created these booklets 
Um, and we're going to be, I'm, so for this series, we're going to be reading out of these booklets. Um, we put the gospel of Mark on one side of your booklet, and then on the other side are some questions, uh, space for you to make notes, to, to bring into your small groups with you. We so want to encourage you um, to, to, be in the, to be in small groups. I really want to uh, point you out to two pages in particular. There's a schedule, so you will know exactly what we're going to talk about each week. So one of the things that we want, we want to give you responsibility for, we want to give you ownership for, is knowing what we're going to be talking about. So when you come in here on a Sunday morning, or you go into your small groups, you are familiar with the text. Like this is a way for, for us as individual Christians to take ownership for what we're going to be reading, what we're going to be studying and talking about. And then on the page before that, on the overview intro, there's a, there's a page that has different resources. And you can see this in your booklet. That's a code you can scan. Just break out your phone, um, take a picture of that, and it'll take you to a website where there's all kinds of electronic resources. And one of the things that we've been doing a lot is we've been providing these resources for you. And I don't often have people tell me, hey, I used this, I read this, I saw this, but this morning I did. I had someone come up to me in the lobby and say, I'm so glad that you have that because now I feel like I can be more prepared. So I feel like that's a win. We want to, we want to equip you. We want to challenge you to take ownership for your, for your faith and your relationship in Jesus. So I'm going to read through some of these background things for us um, so who wrote the gospel of Mark? According to early church tradition, Mark, um, who is also known as John Mark elsewhere in the New Testament, is, is the author of this book. John Mark was a companion to the apostle Peter, and he likely put this together as, as Peter traveled throughout the Roman Empire and John Mark was his, was his companion. Some people believe he was uh, Peter's interpreter. Like he would hear all of these stories about Jesus. He would hear Peter preach about Jesus. He would hear Peter talk about Jesus. And eventually over time, what Peter did was he, he, he um, or John Mark did was he compiled all of these teachings that Peter had been talking about into this book that we call the Gospel of Mark. Um, Mark was not one of the original disciples or apostles of Jesus. He's a, he was a friend, a companion to um, Simon Peter. Um, some people believe, actually most people believe that this was the first gospel that was written in the early 50s or early 60s. Um, and Mark, along with Matthew and Luke, is a Bible nerd term is what's known as a synoptic gospel. And that word synoptic loosely means seeing together. So if you were to compare the books of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, you would see a lot of similarities. They share a lot of the same stories. They share a lot of the same teachings of Jesus. But when you compare it to John, John's a completely different kind of book. And one of the things that I would encourage you to do, and this is something that we put, I actually just put this on the resource page uh, at the beginning of this week, is there's, a, there's something you, when you go to that page, you can click on it, you compare all of the Gospels. So when Matthew talks about this, you'll see where Mark talked about it, where Luke talked about it, and where John talked about it. Because we don't have, because we're in the gospel of Mark, we don't have like the full story of Jesus. If you read Mark 1 this week, you'll notice that there was um, something that was pretty, mis pretty dramatically missing than the other gospels have, right? The birth of Christ. 
Mark doesn't mention that at all. So any information that we have about the birth of Christ, we're not going to find in Mark. It's going to be in Matthew, Luke, or John. And these gospels um, really work together to tell the whole story. So I just want to encourage you as we're going through this series together to spend time in your Bible reading and studying to try and understand what's going on. And also one of the things we can kind of gather from, from the Gospel of Mark is, is the audience was primarily a Gentile audience. You know, the, that's a church word, isn't it? Gentile. How many of you use the word Gentile this week? Right? Richard, you're in Bible college. That doesn't count. Um, <laughs> Like Gentile is really a Bible word. We, we don't really, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to us. We, when we read through the Gospels and we see Jews and we see Gentiles, and Gentile essentially means anyone who is not born a Jew. Um, the Jews were God's people. Anyone who was a Gentile was not God's people until Jesus came. And you can read about that later um, in the book, in the, in the Bible. Um, but the, the audience that Mark was primarily writing to was a Gentile audience. Now, it doesn't say that, but there are some clues. Um, we can read um, the way that Mark describes Jewish customs, explaining them to the audience that he is um, that he is writing this to. And it's most likely written to the church at Rome. And I also want you to know, just like all of the Gospels, that Mark's not a video camera taping of the life of Jesus. Sometimes when we read through the Bible, we have, we have in our minds that it's like this linear story. And then this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. But that's not, that's not Mark. And that's actually not any of the Gospels it ends with the resurrection, but it's not necessarily, necessarily linear. And today, and we'll talk more about this um, next week as well, I want you to notice something about the first two chapters in the book of Mark. If all we looked at was Mark chapter 1, we would think that Jesus had a pretty successful ministry. Because all of the stories that we read in Mark chapter 1 are victories. If we were to read chapter 2 of Mark, only chapter 2, we would think that Jesus had a pretty rough life because everyone denied him and no one wanted to listen to him. So what's happening here in this book is you can just imagine that Peter is talking to John Mark about all of these stories. So it makes sense, like the way that Mark is going to compile some of these things together. And like I say, whenever we do a book together and we read through the entire thing, um, we're not going to talk about every single thing in it. There are probably some things that I'm going to talk about over the next 12 weeks that you wish I wouldn't talk about. And there are things that you wish I would talk about. That's why we've given you this book, and that's why we ask you to be in small group. So you can take what you've heard, you can take what you've learned, and you can discuss it together in community. So let's start off. We're going to read verses uh, 1 through 8 from Mark chapter one together. But before we do that, we should pray. God, I'm thankful for your word this morning. Just ask that you would reveal yourself to us. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way. He's a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. 
Clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. When they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel, camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this introduction is pretty important. The very first thing that Mark tells us is that this is the good news about Jesus Christ. That term good news is also a church word. It's one we may not normally hear too much outside of the church. But it was, it was a pretty common phrase that was used when Mark wrote this gospel. And it was a term that was used for political or personal reporting. Usually when, when an emperor was born or there was a great military victory, there would be good news. It would be announced as good news. And see, Rome, in, that's the context of where Mark is writing this gospel. This is the people that he's writing, them to, writing it to. This is the, the people here um, are under military occupation. See, Rome has its own version of good news. And here's Rome's good news. Caesar is the son of God and that peace and security are found in him. That was the good news that was proclaimed all throughout the Roman Empire. Caesar is God's son, and the pathway to peace and security are found in him. So imagine that for a moment. Mark uses this phrase to describe something else, to use a cultural word to describe something else. And I think if we were to consider the good news that our culture often presents, it would sound something like this. Follow your heart. That's our culture's good news. Follow your heart. Do what you think is best. Another example of our culture's good news is love is love. That's what our culture wants us to believe. That's what our culture teaches us as good news. Our culture teaches us as good news that might makes right. That's what our culture says. If you're strong, you win. If you, are, if you have a million followers on Instagram, you have validity in your life. See, these are the things that our culture tells us is good news. And our culture expects that if we would just give in to them, we would have the life that we want. If I could just have a house in this neighborhood, if I could just have a job like this job, if I could just make X amount of money. See, this is what our culture is constantly peddling to us as good news. And the gospel of Jesus Christ flies in the face of this good news. Because this is real good news. 
And it's about Jesus Christ. And what, what Mark is going to tell us throughout the 16 chapters of his gospel is this. God has provided life. He's provided salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the real good news. It's not that Caesar is king and, and life and happiness are found in him. It's not because of your social status, you have happiness, you have joy. The real good news is through Jesus Christ. And he uses this word like um, Jesus the Messiah. Other translations, maybe if you're, if you're not following along with you're using another translation, maybe your translation says Christ. That's not his last name. That's a Greek word, Christos. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So when you see Messiah and you see Christ, they're really talking about the exact same thing. And the good news about Jesus Christ doesn't begin in a manger. It actually begins with a messenger who is shouting. That's what Mark's gospel is telling us. Who is shouting, the Lord is coming, clear the road. That's where the gospel of Jesus Christ actually begins. And we spent time in the month of December. We went, through, we went through those prophecies of Jesus. We went through the Old Testament. And that was on purpose because we wanted to set up this series in talking about that, that Jesus wasn't just, Jesus wasn't the Messiah just because he was born in a manger. See, a lot of us think that Jesus' story began in the manger, but Mark is telling us something else that actually began before that. What's really interesting about this particular gospel is he talks about Isaiah, but then he quotes Malachi. If you have a study Bible at home, I would encourage you to use that as you're reading through all of these things. But this first little section, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. That's actually from Malachi. It's from, it's from Malachi um, 3. Verses 1 to 5, and I forgot my Bible up here, so I'm going to ask my wife to hand me my Bible. It's on the floor there. Thank you. I'm going to share with you from the book of Malachi. Yeah, you can clap. Yeah, that's good. <clears throat> she loves the attention that that gives her. I will hear about that later. So here's what Mark says. This is the good news about Jesus Christ. Just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Of course, then he quotes Malachi. So here's what Malachi says. Look, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Let's pause there for a second. Um, so Malachi is taking place after the people have returned from the captivity in Babylon. Right? If you remember, we talked about that a year ago. We went through the whole Bible the people are disobedient. God sends the Babylonians in to take them captive. After 70 years, they return home. You would think they would have learned their lesson, right? 70 years of captivity, you would have think they've learned their lesson. But according to the book of Malachi, they haven't. They've rebuilt the temple, um, but they're not being faithful to God. We read that they're, um, they're not, they're not uh, being just 
to the people in their society. They're not caring for the poor. They're not caring for the marginalized. When it comes time for them to bring offerings, they're bringing blind and crippled animals. And then they have the nerve, and this is, this is what's uh, so interesting. The last verse in chapter 2 of Malachi You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? You've wearied him by saying that all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight and he is pleased with them. You've wearied him by asking, where is the Lord of justice? And then we see this Malachi text where basically Malachi says, he's coming. The justice you want is coming. In verse 2 in Malachi 3 But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver burning away the dross. He'll purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver. So they once again may offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. See, what's happening here is the people have in their mind who God is. And this is why this matters for us. Because we have in our minds who God is. We think we know Jesus. We think we have him all figured out. That was their day. And what Malachi, God is telling the people through Malachi is, there's a savior coming and he's probably not going to act like you think he's going to act. He's going to do some different things. And then Isaiah Chapter 40, 1 to 31, which I'm not going to read, but I suggest you do. And essentially, Isaiah says this, God's ways are not your ways. He's going to rule with power. He's going to make low what is high and lofty. He's going to shepherd the people and give power to the powerless. See, this is a counter gospel, right? Do you see that? In our culture, it's the high and mighty who reign. In our culture, it's the people who have power who reign. In the Roman culture, it's the people who have status who reign. And you know how they got all of those things? Because they said that Caesar was their God and they found their hope and their peace and their trust in him. And along comes Mark and he says, "Um, I've got some good news for you. That's not it. And he's pointing to John the Baptist. He says there's someone else in the story. John's mission was to prepare the way for Jesus' coming, to let everyone know that Jesus was coming. And he does this in the craziest way possible. He dresses like an Old Testament prophet. John the Baptist would be the car wreck that we would all slow down for. John the Baptist would be the guy standing on the corner, downtown Scotts Bluff, that if we heard about it, we would all drive downtown to see this guy. People would take out their phones and he would be viral. Because he was a crazy person in our minds. According to some other gospels, he says this to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee? Prove your gods by the way you live. Don't say we're safe. We belong to Abraham. John tells them that God can make sons of Abraham out of stones. 
He tells them the axe is poised and ready to cut the roots. He says, I'm baptizing you with water, but someone else is coming who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's coming to separate the wheat from the chaff. This is not a popular message. See, we hear these things and it's easy for us to, oh man, those Pharisees, when are they ever going to learn? But we have to remember that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, those are the religious leaders of the day. Everyone would have been aligned with one of those two parties. And everyone would have been offended by them. Let's read verses 9 to 15. One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. Jesus came up out of the water. He saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals and angels took care of him. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. See, this ought to cause us to ask a question, a pretty obvious question, because we just read in the first part of Mark chapter 1 that John baptized people because they had confessed their sins and repented. Well, as Christians, we believe that Jesus never sinned. So that begs a really important question, right? Well, why was Jesus baptized? If baptism was for sinners, why was Jesus baptized? And, and notice that John doesn't give an, or Mark doesn't give an answer to that question. One of the things that you're going to see as we read through the gospel of Mark over the next 12 weeks or so, Mark rarely gives answers. This is on purpose. See, this, this is done to to welcome us and to invite us into the story. To, this is done so that we might ask questions, so that we might investigate, so that we can see the other gospels and read and study them so that we spend more time in God's word. And I would encourage you, you ought to do that in community. As important as your personal reading time is as a Christian, and it is important. One of the things that as I read and study scripture more and more and more and more, it's really meant to be done in community. That's how we learn. That's how we mature. We talked about that last week. So maybe you're wondering what the answer to the question is. Why was Jesus baptized? Look in the other gospels and come to our baptism class in the next two weeks. We're going to talk about that because it's important. It's really important for us to understand. And I also want you to see here in this text in verse 12, it says, then the spirit compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. Let us not forget that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was not 50% God, 50% man. He was not 51% God, 49% man. He was 100% God and 100% man. I don't know how that works. That math doesn't add up to me. And it's not because I only went to Bible college. 
God, Jesus, was fully God and fully man. He was compelled by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. Let's read verses 16 through 20. One day as Jesus was, I, I bet you thought I was going to explain it, didn't you? Um, One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. Do you see the invitation that Jesus gives to these four fishermen? Essentially, he says this. Do you want to catch guild aquatic life for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? And with that invitation, they dropped their nets and they went and followed him. Because the only right response, this is what we're being coded to see here in Mark chapter 1. The only right response to God's invitation is obedience. When God calls us, and he invites us to join him in his mission. The only right response is obedience. Let's read 21 through 28. Jesus and his companions went out to the town of Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Suddenly, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus reprimanded him, Be quiet, come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed through the man into a convulsion and then came out of him. Can you imagine what that would be like today? Amazement gripped the audience and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They act, asked excitedly. It has such authority, even the evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. Do you sort of see that second response there? Who is this? What sort of teaching is this? Who is this person? As I was reading and studying, and we talked about this in staff meeting last week, there is a way to teach the scriptures without any authority. See, the people who have been gathered in, gathering in this synagogue for years had heard, all, had heard all kinds of teaching that had no authority. And then Jesus comes along, and, and we know from other gospels that he read Isaiah 53. And he says, what we're reading is fulfilled today in me. See, there's a way to teach scriptures without any authority. And then here's the flip of that. There's a way to know what the Bible says without it impacting or affecting our lives. We can know all the verses. We can, from VBS, begin to memorize scriptures, John 
Philippians 4.12, Jeremiah 29.11. We can start memorizing all of those verses. And there's a way to memorize without having it impact and affect our lives. One of the things that we can see here is Jesus Christ has come to confront evil in the world. See, one of the things that we think about as Jesus-y in our culture is Jesus was a great moral teacher. Jesus just loved everyone. You know, he just let, he just let people do whatever they wanted to. Question, have you seen that in this story? Jesus confronts evil things. I want you to note the responses. The people are amazed. The demon is filled with fear and indignation. It says, can't you just leave us alone? Then the demon obeys. And I want you to notice that there wasn't a battle. There wasn't a fight. How many movies have you seen where someone shows up to cast a demon out of someone and then their head spins around like a million miles an hour and pea soup goes everywhere? You know, like it's this great battle between Jesus or between those people and the demons. We don't see that here. We see obedience and I also think, again, reading from this, and this is, this is where we want to dig deep. I think these de- this demon shows us that there is a way to acknowledge who Jesus is and be opposed to him. See, it's not just a matter of knowing who Jesus is and rejecting him. There are people who know Jesus is and they're opposed to him. And that's something that this demon is showing us here. We can intellectually assent to the truths of the gospel. This was my story. As we, as we walked away from the church, if any one of you would have asked me, what, you know, what do you believe about Jesus? I would have intellectually assented to all of the things like Virgin birth, died on a cross, resurrected. Intellectually, I believed every one of those things, but it made no difference in my life. In fact, I was living a life that was counter to that. These are, these are warning signs for us. Maybe you're wondering why Jesus didn't want people to know who he was. Notice that Mark doesn't tell you that. We're going to talk more about that next week. Here's verses 29 to 34. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. See, what we're seeing here is Jesus is not just a proclaimer of the good news. Jesus isn't just telling all of these people about the good news. 
He's demonstrating what it looks like. And for us, as, as we look into this story, we sang it in one of the songs today. How you love, who you love, I'll love. How you serve, I'll serve. See, we're not just called to proclaim the gospel. We're not just called to tell the gospel. We're not just called to teach the gospel. We're called to demonstrate the gospel. We're called to live it out. And that's what Jesus is doing here. It's verses 35 to 39. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That's why I came. So he traveled through the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. This is one of those examples where I'm not going to talk about everything you want me to talk about. It's just really simple. Notice that Jesus is on mission. Jesus doesn't let the success that he's having in Capernaum get in the way of his mission. Sometimes we like to think that if we're having success, we need to stay because there's, there's, there's a harvest. And see, Jesus has a mission to preach and to demonstrate, and he's going to fulfill that mission. Let's finish out Mark 1. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I'm willing, he said, be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. As a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places, but people kept coming from everywhere. So leprosy was more than an illness. Leprosy was considered to be a direct punishment for sin. And it affected the life, the entire life of the person that had leprosy. A person who had leprosy would have few, if any, friends. They would have no external religious life. The fact that he was in the synagogue, the fact that he was around someone who was a teacher was a violation of the law. These people would have been marginalized and maligned by everyone. This is what Leviticus 13.45 says. Those who suffer from infectious skin diseases, that's leprosy, must tear their clothing and leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouth and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as the serious disease lasts, they will be ceremonially unclean. They must live in isolation in their place outside the camp. Imagine what this would be like for this person. There's no way to hide your shame. This would be like you as you walked around Walmart 
telling everyone how prideful and arrogant you were. This would be like you telling everyone how angry you were. This would be like you telling, one, telling everyone you come into contact with that you're a porn addict, that you're addicted to alcohol. He had to. He had no other choice. And what I love about Jesus is he sees this person who is marginalized and he moves towards him. The NLT says Jesus was moved with compassion. Some other translations say he was moved with pity. And there's yet another translation that says he was moved with anger. So what do we do with all three of those concepts? If you're a parent in the room, think about your feelings when you see one of your children or your grandkids struggle. Filled with compassion? Filled with a little pity? Maybe filled with some some holy anger? If you're a teacher in the room, when one of your students struggles, are you filled with compassion? Are you filled with pity? See, what we're seeing here in this story, and I think that's why Mark, this chapter ends with this particular story. What we're seeing is the shepherd that Isaiah talked about shepherding his flock. See, this is the Messiah. This is the good news. Not that Jesus is going to come as the Messiah and he's going to throw the Romans out, but he's going to shepherd his people. And for us, we can recognize that when we sin and we go to God, we don't find an angry, vindictive God in the face of our sin. We find a God who meets us with compassion. We find a God that meets us with pity and a little bit of holy anger because of our sinfulness. He doesn't shake his head at us. He reaches out and he touches us. He restores us. He renews us. And there are many of us in the room for whom that's our story. Because we were dead. We were lost in our sin. And we recognize that the only good news we have is in the person of Jesus Christ. And God was the example for us. Jesus is the example for us. But I want you to notice that the healing wasn't the end of the story. He sends the man to the temple to do something in public so they can all see. Don't miss this. Think about baptism that we're going to talk about for two weeks. Think about baptism. See, it's not, the, it's not the act of going to the temple that saves him. It's a public demonstration of this so that other people can see it. He is helping by going to the temple. He's, he's allowing other people to see and experience the love of God. But he didn't do it. He wasn't obedient And here we find at the end of the chapter, the first sign that it's possible to be disobedient to Jesus. Remember the three responses. Some people are going to follow. Some people are going to ask, who is Jesus? And some people are going to be disobedient. We've seen all three in this first chapter. See, this person had the opportunity to be a public witness for Jesus. And he chose not to do it. And this had a consequence. When we read in the Bible, it tells us that Jesus wasn't able to go into towns. Now, we don't know what the impact of that is. 
But I think the reality of it is we don't know the impact lots of times, the consequences of our disobedience for God. We're not aware of that. And here's the second thing. People still found Jesus. One of the things that we can read in this story is our disobedience doesn't prevent God's kingdom from moving forward. Isn't that good news? Like, isn't that good news in your life? That your disobedience doesn't get in the way of God's accomplishing his purposes in you? Now, we have to repent. We have to acknowledge our sin. We have to move forward. But God's kingdom advancing doesn't depend on me. And it doesn't depend on you. God is going to fulfill his purposes. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. That no matter what we choose to do, his kingdom is going to move forward. And each and every one of us is invited to participate in that. We're invited to join him and we're not going to do it perfectly. We're not going to do it flawlessly. In fact, we're going to have seemingly a lot more failures than successes because we're humans. And the good news of Jesus is when we go to him, he doesn't shake his head. He doesn't say, oh, you again. He reaches out and he heals us and he offers us a new opportunity. This is the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that your good news wasn't just wasn't just something that happened in a manger, but it was foretold. You were aware of our sin and you knew how you were going to fix it. You knew how you were going to make all things right. And that's through your son, Jesus Christ. And you invited us to participate in this. I pray that as we read through the gospel of Mark over the next several months, that we would enter into the story that we would be challenged, that we would be confronted. As we talked last week, that we would, we would not just see the gospel exposed, but we would see the, go the gospel expose us for who we really are, what we really need from you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.